and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kevin Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kevin. Ready to delve into the master this week? I don't know if Kevin is, but Dr. John Smith sure is. Well, that's about the best that we can hope for, I guess. This week, we are covering the third and final story in the Villains Trilogy. That means that we are covering Master by Joseph Lister. Kevin, would you care to give us a little summary of this one? Master is Big Finish's sort of dark mirror of the classic Who story, Human Nature, which, if you don't know the novel, you definitely know the TV episode. Uh, Instead of the Doctor, it's the Master who has taken on the persona of John Smith and living a quiet life where he's enjoying the sort of company of others rather than time-traveling adventures. Of course, this life has come to the end with the arrival of Doctor and with a deal from Death herself as the Master must choose between the persona of John Smith and his true self. It's one of the knockout Big Finish stories, like one of Jeffrey Beaver's best performances as the Master, one of the best performances as the Master, period. And it really is a great conclusion to this trilogy. Well, that's an excellent summary indeed. Yeah, I think one of the things I admire most about this play, there's, there's a lot of things to admire here. I don't think it's quite flawless, but there's a vast amount to admire here. And I think Jeffrey Beavers is, is sort of front and foremost of my kind of list of things to admire here. He is beyond stunning in this. This is absolutely um, the play that convinced me that he was the best master and I know that's I know that's one of those things that you know people will always have a debate over you know who's your favorite doctor who's your favorite master but for me my favorite master even above Delgado even above Gomez dearly though I love both of those those actors of course it's it's Beavers and it's this play that convinced me about just how good he is as the master and what's astonishing about that is the fact that the master is only really in one scene. It's only really one scene where the master is sort of front and centre as his own self. But Jeffrey Beavers is such a good actor, he's kind of able to invoke the spirit of the master sort of throughout the whole piece. But um, yeah, how did you find his performance? Oh yeah, like, okay, <laughs> I pretty much front-loaded my opinion of it. It's one of the best performances of the master in any incarnation across any actor. He does such a good job. Like you said, John Smith, like the John Smith of human nature, it bleeds through, so it's still very recognizable the master, even when it's a different person still. And to walk that through a thin, paradoxical line, <clears throat> as well as maybe even better than Tenant did in that episode, is just spectacular. And so it's still a good master performance, even if it's not really, quote-unquote, the master. But then you still have the knockout scene where he is the master in episode four, and it's just wonderful. He brings in the house with that sort of very seething villainy and it's so delectable. I love it. He's such a good part of the story. Well, he takes such relish in delivering his lines as the master, and that 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 sheer relishness, that joy of evil that he takes when he's sort of talking, when he actually is the master, is just it's one of the things that makes his sort of interpretation of the character kind of its own thing. I mean, you always got the impression that, you know, Delgado enjoys it because he's he's this kind of restrained, kind of uh, sophisticated kind of character. And, and Gomez has her sort of wild kind of anarchistic sort of flurries and, and she, she sort of revels in that. But there's something about the way that, that Beaver is just, just every line kind of drips with that malevolence. And he just, he just, 
oh, he just it just comes so alive when he's when he's finally allowed to be the master. But I think one of the real skills here um, that sort of invokes sort of throughout. I mean that that last that moment where he becomes the master is, is in episode four, and and the other three episodes without the master in it. Um, never kind of end up being a sort of when will we get to the fireworks factory sort of wheel spinning thing. They're genuinely riveting. And and part of that is, is definitely down to the scripting, but absolutely part of that is just down to how brilliantly um, Jeffrey Beavers is able to play John Smith because he he just, he really is stunning. I'm, I'm gushing again. And I, I know I gushed last week when we were talking about um, Terry Malloy as, as Davros and, and quite deservedly so. I, I, I stand by all that. But Beavers is every bit his equal here, every single bit his equal here, and 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 it's just, I I'm just kind of in awe of of the the quality of his performance here, and he's able. The thing is, he's able to give so much heart and compassion to John Smith without it just seeming like a kind of obvious kind of different version or without it just seeming like it's that kind of you know the master is very evil so this character must be very good it, it it's never reduced to that kind of scales there are shades and complexities to john smith that stop him just being this kind of tired mirror image kind of thing um and that's really that's the key to why i think his character sort of works as john smith because he is this warm compassionate sort of very sort of He's not quite fully tragic at that point, but this is, he obviously has a tragedy about him in that he doesn't know who he is and he has a, a lost history, but he has his friends and he has his books and his house and he seems to live a, a decent and, and good life. And and that's, that's he, Jeffrey Beavers is able to bring that side to life as well. It's not just that he's good at playing this kind of nasty evil villain. He's also able to deliver this incredibly kind of compassionate and, and sort of worthwhile man at the same time and be able to transition between the two over the length of the play sort of flawlessly. And that takes such skill, such technique. I, I am just completely in awe of it. John Smith is such a unique character. Like, we get such a fully fleshed out ideas of his point of view and his beliefs. And I mean, at times they're so at odds with the master, but at the time you don't, you don't really know where one ends and the other begins sort of, especially when he's sort of waxing with the nature of evil, it sort of comes back when the master fully takes over how Johnson is sort of questioning whether evil is something someone can innately be in episode two, the master, like it's something the master fully rejects when he's let loose in episode four, like, sort of as a counterpoint to the Doctor's idea that someone can be sort of pure evil. Well, I say the Doctor's idea, but it's one that he also waffles on back and forth. That's sort of the fascinating thing about this story, is it doesn't ever really offer full answers to the question it asks. It has characters change viewpoints over the course of the story and back again, and as they themselves sort of try to fu puzzle out the philosophy, and doesn't really ever hit like a definitive, this is what evil is. So it almost takes a sort of like... A philosophy like discussion, <laughs> almost dorm room esque, only at a better level than that. But hard to think of a better metaphor. But it's just like, yeah, never really coming to this conclusion. Just more circling ideas and going through them and working through them, and which is so fascinating to me. Well, I think because of the sort of philosophical nature of this piece, I think it feels right that it doesn't sort of give any sort of final definitive answer. I think if it were to try and give one answer about the the nature of evil or, or what it is or whether it even really exists as a concept, I think that would kind of undercut what it is the play is, is trying to achieve. I don't think it's setting out to answer any questions 
one way or the other. I think it's setting out to be provocative, to provoke questions in, in the listener's mind. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's obvious subversions in the idea that the Doctor should have been the Master and vice versa and all those kind of things. But, but sort of much more, that's, that's sort of more of a, a plot beat than it is a sort of philosophical discussion. But like, yeah, that episode two is just... I mean, I just I can't think of any kind of parallel in in sort of big finish. It's just two people who sit and talk for whatever it is, forty minutes or something, on the nature of evil. It's just Sylvester McCoy and Jeffrey Beavers talking to each other, and that ought to be a death knell to a story like this. You know, nothing, literally nothing happens. It's just two characters discussing something, but it is riveting. It is absolutely captivating, and it is a, again, it's the strength of everybody. Um, who's been involved in it? Up, you know, it, uh, Joseph Lister's writing is is amazing. Of course, we've we've mentioned Jeffrey Beavers already, but Sylvester McCoy as well is just beyond brilliant here. This is one of my favorite McCoy performances, and he's just able to land that kind of that sense of weariness, that sense of caution, that sense of um, questioning. The way that he's still got a little sort of you can feel that he's flitting around the edges, especially when when um, John Smith comes out and sort of directly asks him, "Do you know me?" and 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 the Doctor denies it. But John Smith is smart enough to work it out. He works out that, that the Doctor is lying. And all those moments and the way that they just sit and talk for, yeah, like basically half an hour to discuss the nature of evil. It's just, as I said, I just can't think of another thing in, in the whole of Big Finish, which everything sort of comes close to being able to do that. And not only do it, but do it with such brilliance, with such such knowledge and such skill and and it's just uh, that that episode alone just episode two i am in awe of it's definitely one of the best certainly one of the bravest episodes of doctor who that's been produced and i think that's what doctor who should be doing when it's at its best it's doing something that you never would get from any sort of other like kind of media franchise <laughs> like you can never have any other sort of sci-fi franchise do something like doctor who can Outside of just like original stories, Doctor Who, if you're going to say it's an existing story, Doctor Who is the format to do it because it can do anything. And what better to prove that than episode two of Master, where it's just two characters talking about philosophy in the library the whole time for, I believe it's 25 minutes, but they could go for 40 easily. I mean, they could just keep going and it would still be fascinating. Because like I say, McCoy and Beavers are giving great performances and Lidster's sort of philosophical musings are so interesting to listen to. So it just winds up really working. And that's just what I love about Doctor Who in all forms is that it can do literally anything. And I love it when Doctor Who realizes that and does anything, like something you would never expect a story to do, which is, in this case, just have people talk for 25 minutes and you enjoy it. A friend of mine, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, who and she's very much one of the not we. Uh, she's not a Doctor Who fan at all, and she asked. She was asking me about the fact that I did this podcast, and she said, "What is it about Doctor Who that you find so sort of beguiling? Why why is it that you spend all your kind of time and effort sort of on this show?" And and my answer was exactly the one that you've just given. It's because it can literally do anything. It is limitless in in what it's able to achieve. And when you get a play like this, you start to kind of you get an understanding of what that means. It's not just about being able to go from the sort of the breath of the universe to the end of time or, or whatever it is. It's about being able to have something which can sit down and have this kind of intelligent, informed discussion about the nature of evil in a format which it just, you know, isn't 
this is, doesn't sound like it's the sort of thing that the show should be able to do, and yet it can, and it, it can do it so brilliantly. And I think one of the things with Joseph Lister's writing here, one of the things that he's really able to make work is that he does avoid all the most obvious kind of pitfalls. So we don't have, you know, especially when you're talking about the, like, the nature of evil or what's right or what's sort of morally correct. He's, he's not kind of falling into the traps of doing things like the old trolley problem or the ends justify the means or kind of all these things that you've heard discussed before. It's, it's much more kind of subtle than that. There's a, there's a dexterousness to the way that he's able to, to discuss it. And he takes time to lay it out. It's the fact that it's that um, 25 minutes or whatever it is um, that he is allowed that space to kind of uh, build out his thesis on both sides and that helps a lot and that slow dawning realization that john smith has as he starts to sort of doubt whether motive is always a part of killing and and whether whether motive is ever even really required and and could that really be at the heart of what evil is it's such a it's such a bravura moment and that 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 yeah that creeping understanding as as john smith can feel something at the edge of his consciousness he doesn't quite understand what it is but he understands that it's it's something that he he's compelled to kind of explore philosophically as he discusses this with the doctor and it's just i mean it's just it's just brilliant i keep using that word but i can't think of anything else to to call it it's just it's it's astounding and again it's in those moments so subtle little moments that that jeffrey beaver's performance is just just breathtakingly good it's it's not a they're not it's not a big showy moment it's not a big ta-da which you, you get with the master um and it's not that dripping evil it's just that that tiny particle by particle John Smith's understanding starts to shift as he understands something that's just in the fringes of his understanding. I think what also makes the story work and works so well and works so uniquely is, I guess from my point of view, some of the best acting in Doctor Who is the big hammy acting. And it's certainly the kind of acting you see <laughs> most often in Doctor Who. People playing to the rafters, chewing the scenery. And, you, I mean, even in the last story, Davros, you have Terry Malloy's performance. I mean, it's very good. It's one of the best performances in Doctor Who. It's not subtle. It's not underplaying. <laughs> he is raging so hard in that story. Uh, what's great about Master is that everyone is underplaying. It's a lot of very quiet performances, with maybe some exceptions here and there. But McCoy and Beavers especially, everything they do is quiet. And for McCoy, that is so... <laughs> revolutionary for him and I, I love it when McCoy goes big sometimes sometimes it's awful but I love it when McCoy goes big sometimes and it's not a knock on him to say that he usually goes big but when he goes so quiet here for the whole story as well not just the small periods but the whole story he's playing it very quiet and reserved and scared but also wise there's a very mix of emotions here where he's just trying to get his friend back and oh man, even the end, that very quiet whimper of he just wants to say goodbye to his friend, it's so powerful because he's never shouting the entire story. And well, except for the time when he's screaming because he's struck by lightning, but that's a good excuse. <laughs> and Beavers as well, like outside of maybe a little bit going over the top when he becomes the master for that brief scene, he's just this very quiet, unassuming guy, and that works so well for the John Smith persona. And so it just allows for this very contemplative tone to the story and it's such a lower key than Doctor Who usually plays in and that's so fascinating 
Well, it definitely gets the best out of Mackay. I think there's no question about that. And it's a really sort of time-worn performance that he's giving here. You can sort of feel the weight on him. You can feel all the Doctor's regret and his guilt and everything that eats away at him as he, he desperately has this sort of ploy to try and to save his his sort of long lost friend and and you know that like even even the conceit of the master's personality being sort of subsumed into his um subconscious you mentioned um family of blood and human nature earlier on which of course is a perfect analogy you're quite right in that but it also made me think of utopia as well and and it's it's telling that sort of some of these ideas percolate through to kind of the the tv show itself so yeah the idea that the the master can be this character sitting inside essentially the subconscious of a, a, a character as it were waiting to come out sort of lying there and wait just just that whole that whole speech he gets in episode four about about he was always conscious and he was waiting for his moment to emerge it reminds me so much of what happens with uh, professor yana and i find that very telling and i i think there's a few ideas in in master which kind of at least approach being used in the TV show. I'm not going to say that they're sort of... Uh, there's definitely antecedents of them. I'm not saying there's a direct connection between them. Um, but but you can see the same ideas at play. And I, I find that very telling, that, that, that that's, you know, the same kind of solution that the TV show is going for, that, that this play went for. And I don't... I, I say I don't mean that as a criticism at all. I think it shows how much heft the ideas have here. Yeah, it's such a influential story like even though we really haven't seen anything sort of like it just in the contemplativeness playing with the idea of using these like sort of time lords as like what are these characters like outside of the setting outside of their usual sort of mo and it sort of started like with uh, paul cornell's human nature the novel but i master takes it to another sort of extreme and like i said the tv show sort of echoes off that it's just so I just love the sort of interconnections you get between novels and audios and TV shows. It's all sort of a cycle that feeds into each other. And it's one that I hope continues. I guess the novels aren't really much of a factor anymore. But I, I haven't listened to any of the new ones. Maybe they are. But it's, it was always sort of fascinating to see Doctor Who sort of influence itself like this. Oh, I completely agree. And and like one of the other things that I think that lands in, in this play, uh, which I think also seems, at least as I say, it seems like an antecedent of what the TV show does, is, is the big reveal here, which is that the Doctor and Master were friends and, um, you know, that the, the Doctor wants his friend back. The Doctor is doing what he, everything he can to try and save his friend here. And that's that's, that's basically exactly his justification in sort of World Enough and Time and the Doctor Falls for putting up with Missy and her kind of behavior and why he's trying to redeem her, why he locks her away for an entire season worth, you know, in order to try and try and get back his friend. And the thing is, I think at this point in Doctor Who's history, there's never going to be a 100% satisfactory explanation for why the Doctor and the Master have this kind of relationship with each other. And I think this is probably as good an answer as you could probably get. In fact, I think it's delivered here slightly better than it is in World Enough and Time in The Doctor Falls. I don't mean that as criticism. I love both of those uh, TV episodes. I think they're brilliant. But I think the, the, the way and the nature of how this audio works, which, as you said, is in a much lower key. It's not, it doesn't have to worry about having an action sequence with the Cybermen every 15 minutes to keep things going. Um, I think it's able to land that slightly better. But again, I think it's very telling that they're basically playing out on the same sort of idea. It's the same kind of 
canvas for that. And and yeah, as I say, I don't think there's ever going to be a completely satisfactory a, a, explanation for this. But this is much better than some kind of hacky, well, their brother's routine. Or, you know, even like the kind of mm-hmm. the very banal kind of binary opposition of the Holmes kind of Moriarty thing where the Doctor and the Master just stand in opposition to each other because they do. That's who they are. That's that would also that would feel like a, like a cheap throw as well. But this this at least allows some subtlety and some nuance and some complexity to the relationship. So, as I say, this is the one that TV shows basically gone for now. And if that's the best explanation that we're going to get for this, I'm perfectly fine with it. The Year Brothers just is making me is giving me sort of dread visions of what a hack Hollywood screenwriter would do if asked to win the Doctor and Master's origins, and it would be their secret brothers, or they fell in love with the same girl, or something <laughs> terrible like that. And it's so much better when it's just their friends, and now they try to kill each other, or not even try to kill each other, try to do opposite sort of things in the universe and sort of go around each other, but can't kill each other because they just can't that's so much more interesting than anything else you could really come up with um yeah i love the fact that i I know them being friends i can't exactly remember where that started if might have been an episode of classic who i'm not remembering or might have just been like popular sort of fandom like take it as granted at the time and then became canon through either a novel or maybe even this is the first official account of them being friends by the way it feels like an idea embedded in the relationship back even in those Pertwee Delgado episodes. And it just works so well to have that sort of reveal that they sort of swapped places where the doctor killed to save the master's life and that sort of filled him with guilt. And then he gave away the memory, I guess you're supposed to interpret it as, the memory of the killing to the master and sort of swapped the memory of their places in that event. So he began to live with the guilt and that changed him instead. It's such a good twist about how similar they are really when you get down to it and and how it's just this sort of twist of circumstance that made them go their different ways i just love that what i like about that twist as well is the way that the master undercuts it because when when the reveal comes in episode four and the the doctor is sort of forced to admit what happened the master basically just dismisses that out of hand and said no that's got absolutely nothing to do with it this is who i am this is who i wanted to be and so that is who i am and and so it's it i mean that kind of you know they took each other's lives again it could play in less talented hands it could play as a little bit kind of hacky but it never does here partly because joseph lister this is just i can't believe this is the same guy that wrote the rapture by the way it's just yeah it's just astounding oh, just a so sidebar really quick like so joseph lister's at least main rage resume is the rapture master terra firma the reaping the gathering bedtime story for me at least a very neat miss hit miss hit miss hit yeah exactly. <laughs> which i think is very cute uh, yeah Anyway, sorry, I, I, I just can't believe it's the same guy. But anyway, um, yeah, I like the fact that he then kind of completely undercuts that. So he doesn't allow it to just stand as something as straightforward because that could be, I don't even, I said hacky, that's maybe unfair, but a bit soap opera, you know. Um, but the fact that the master is then able to kind of stand there and say, actually, no, it's not nearly as simple as that. It's, it, that might be part of it, but that's not the whole story. It means that it doesn't sort of fall into those kind of traps. And sort of throughout this whole play, Joseph Lister, is, he's really good at avoiding those kind of bear pits, you know. He, he steps around them all sort of time and time again. And I as I've said before, this isn't a perfect play, and we'll get to a couple of weeds, um, no doubt, before too long. But uh, it's just that, yeah, that 
Uh, well, uh, that's the other thing in episode four, the the way that the master rejects after that we've spent four episodes discussing the nature of evil, the master chooses to reject that label um, as as what he is. Um, he has that line: um, "Evil implies malevolence, a desire only to destroy. I crave power, dominion, knowledge of the forbidden." And that's great as a motivation. That's got some real heft to it as well. That that helps to explain why he does stupid things that from the outside make no sense. Partly because he's he's death's champion, apparently, but also because he he's more interested to see what happens. He craves that knowledge, and that that helps to give him a bit of motivation. But it also helps to sort of sort of tie off this discussion on evil where everybody automatically comes to the conclusion that the master is evil and then he explicitly rejects that label sort of being applied to him i think that's just a, a master stroke if you'll excuse the pun and then it's followed up with the doctor's line with but maybe by pursuing those things your actions make you evil exactly so it's again getting yeah getting back to that thing where the story is offering no answers just offering discussion but very intelligent discussion so it sort of wraps you into it and asks you to draw your own conclusions. And none of these characters ever come down to any conclusion either, so as not to tip sort of the audience's hand, because if the Doctor came away with one concern, Elon Musk came with the other, you would just come away with whichever character you like more. Instead, it forces you to sort of grapple with, what do I actually believe? And then that's so much more of an interesting and powerful position for the story to take. And I mean, speaking of no clear answers, that again, goes back to what you are saying about how whether or not which one has the memory of taking Torvik's life, which one actually took Torvik's life, whether it has any impact. Uh, the undercutting works really well because did it have an impact? That's a op another open question, and the story is stronger for making you sort of interpret that how you want to, sort of giving some of the chew over rather than just offering a very pat answer. Oh, absolutely, and I think that's exactly the conclusion it should go for. But I have to say, I want to ask you a question because I'm really interested to hear what mm -hmm. you you think about this. The actual conclusion to the story is sort of completely open-ended, and it's it's bound to annoy some people. <laughs> it seems almost calculated to do that, which I, I sort of secretly mm -hmm. quite like. But the, 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 this whole sort of framing device of the Doctor um, narrating the story to this sniper, we can assume, um, and then that sniper turns out to be the, the literal sort of personification of death, uh, who we'd already encountered at that point. Um, the play kind of def declines to give us a definitive answer um, as to what the master's final choice was in terms of whether he saves himself or and let somebody die in his stead or whether he tries to save a life. And it's not 100% clear at that point whether it's really the master or whether it's John Smith or whether it's some kind of midpoint. And I'm really interested to hear what you think about that conclusion, about the fact that the play doesn't choose to answer the question of what the master does there. I'm glad you said what you think and not what do you think happened, because it's, it's a very Lady and the Tiger ending, mm -hmm. and my stance on that sort of thing from, well, Lady and the Tiger, the classic format, all the way up to the way David Lynch ends Twin Peaks is <laughs> uh, ambiguous endings are worse if you answer the questions. And they're so much more fascinating to make you think about the questions and to sort of leave you in suspense, that's so much more exciting to me than something that offers very clear answers to those sort of things. That sort of almost like being at the top of the roller coaster and then about to drop. Like, that's the best part of the roller coaster for me. And so that's why I love those sort of endings like this, where it's just this sort of terrifying almost sort of abyss of you don't know what's going to happen and you're sort of left with this sort of circular logic 
of and Lister pitches it perfectly where the balance could be either way. You get the really sense that John Smith cares just as much about Jacqueline as he does about his own sort of soul and really cannot choose between the two. And that just makes it so fascinating and I mean fascinating a lot, but <laughs> that's a good word for the story. That's what makes it so great for me, is that it never really does offer some explanation or tidy answer. It makes you sort of confront like this terrifying sort of ambiguity, and that's so great. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it, I, I'm in agreement with you, and I'm also really glad to, to sort of hear you say that because I was worried that that might be one of the things that, that didn't work for... I'm, I'm sure it doesn't work for some people. I'm sure there are people who, who want definitive answers, but I agree with you, and... The, the the journey is almost always better than the destination with these kind of things and here we're given the journey it's up to us to decide what the final destination was and i think that that feels like the the right choice i mean the whole point is about the nature of evil and about how it lives inside us and and, and questioning what that nature is and so the whole the whole point of the four episodes for me is to is to raise those questions it's to get the listener thinking it's to get them to try and to you know arrive at their own conclusions it's not the place of the play to definitively answer those questions and i think it really succeeds about that i think it's a very very provocative piece in terms of the way that it discusses the nature of evil and i think it's right that it therefore declines to give us an answer that that it leaves it up to us to take that debate sort of with us after we've listened to it well that's the best way i can think to sum that up so i'm going to change gears a bit speaking of doctor who influences itself across other mediums and sort of taking things from here and there and things later uh, this has a major character taken from the Doctor Who novels, the character of death, the incarnation of death. And if we're getting to stuff that doesn't work for me, this is the big <laughs> one. I am not a fan of death being such a huge part in the story. As an inciting sort of thing, as setting this thing in motion, it works, I guess. But it almost takes on that ambiguity away, the more you lean into the death stuff. The death's champion stuff, I dislike to a ridiculous degree because it takes away the master's agency if he is just this pawn of death and i'm glad he undercuts that but it shouldn't even be an option on the table because the master's such a weaker character if he was only doing this because of some curse of death put on him as a child it's so bad of a possible explanation and yeah that's i mean that's the big thing is that death makes the story a little too simple and the characters of victor and jacqueline as well the idea that their madness in the story is brought on solely by death just manipulating them. It's such a cheat. It's, I feel like a stronger story wouldn't have those explanations even offered as the story does. Well, yeah, and it's a shame because I think Victor and Jacqueline come across as very good characters in their own right. Uh, one of the things I think which is um, definitely the right choice here is that we only really have sort of five or six major characters. So we have the Doctor, we have the Master of John Smith, we have those two, we have Death, and then we have, well, the Sniper who kind of turns out, oh, and Jade uh, stroke uh, Death, and then we have the Sniper that the story is being relayed to. And that means that all the characters have time to get some sort of real meat in the bones there. And, and you know, Philip Maddock and Anne Riddler are, are great at, at Victor and Jacqueline. They're, they're really good characters. But yeah, I agree. I think it's a shame that they're, just basically puppets on a string in the end, and I'm I'm with you in this. I I I I find Death's inclusion here 
too contrived. Um, I've mentioned, I think, before in the podcast that I'm, I'm not a big fan of the New Adventures tendency to personify concepts like time and death as, as literal. And so it feels like a bit of a shame that it's here. I mean, I think this is obvious when you're listening to the Doctor side of things here. I think it's very obvious that this is the New Adventures Doctor, that bone-deep weariness and that kind of exhaustion. But, but also, you know, there's still a sparkle there. This feels like the New Adventures Doctor to me. And that's fine. We have no companions, but we can, you know, the, like the adjudicators are, are are mentioned, and there's an offhanded reference to uh, Benny. So we can we we know that it's being placed at at that end of the spectrum, as it were. Uh, but the whole death thing just feels, yeah, very. I don't know. Yeah, contrived. It's the only word I can think of. Had sort of Jade or Death sort of been some other character obviously i want to say the rani but you know it doesn't matter whoever it is but if it just be some other character i think the events would feel a little bit less less abstract i think maybe that's the word um and and, and charlie hayes is great as as jay as jade and his death i don't want to sort of imply otherwise but it's not a, it's not a concept that feels really very much at home in doctor who to me it's like the nas used to have that failed attempt to have um, Lovecraftian mythology welded to sort of a Doctor Who structure so like the great intelligence was really Yogg-Sothoth or something and I, I don't know that never really worked for me either and it, it definitely robs the play of something um, when we were talking about Davros last week we, that's what we really discussed there weren't um, cheap get-outs and there weren't kind of excuses made for him it was a, really a genuine analysis of absolutely what made this person who he was but the invocation of death here does undercut it because other people are manipulating it and it, it's not necessary we get a perfect insight into who the master is and there are discussions on evil and everything that we've talked about so far that's that's the thing death isn't necessary as a concept you need somebody as the motivator but l l any other character might have been i think a more successful choice it's it, yeah it's a shame it, it undercuts the tragedy of the piece i think i don't want to get too far into this is how i write the story but this is how I'd write the story. <laughs> uh, it's, I think the strongest version of the story doesn't have death at all and finds a way. I mean, using the chameleon arch is another great way, as doesn't the other versions of this story that have been told, on a way to just get the master into John Smith, use that as a device, and then contrive some reason the Doctor has to take him out. I think that's really all you need. Like Death really works best here as the plot device, the reason the master has to get in and out of John Smith. And that's when you add the sort of extra stuff of she's also manipulating the whole night around her, and she is waxing how she is the master's master, or is he her master? And that's where it starts to fall apart, because it's robbing characters of agency, and it's getting too plotty when the first three episodes of the story are so much about character and about philosophy. And it's just feels antithetical to what was worked so well about the story beforehand. And it feels bad to sort of pick this out because against any other Doctor Who story, like I said, Charlie Hayes is a great performance. And the idea of death, like as a character, like you're right, it doesn't really jive with Doctor Who, but the way she is literally characterized in this story is fun. She's like a fun puppet master character. And it's part of it is Hayes' performance really boosting that up, but she's great. She's a fun presence to be around. So yeah, it doesn't sink the story by any means. It's, would be good in comparison to most of Doctor Who. It's just bad because it feels cheap compared to how thoughtful and uh, I don't want to use mature, but <laughs> that 
does feel like what it should say because it has so, such weird connotations, meaning like violent or something. But it's not that. It really is philosophical. It's thoughtful beforehand. And then death turns it into just another but pretty good Doctor Who story. It doesn't fully turn into that. But it starts to edge in that territory. And I think that robs it of something really special. I think mature is a very good word to describe this. But it, it's, it is mature in the proper sense of the word. It's not mature in sort of that sort of torchwood adolescent, you know, sex and drugs kind of thing. It's uh, properly mature. It's a mature discussion. It's a, you know, it's a, a debate. It's a, a real philosophical piece. And I think a mature... Uh, approach to that is what's necessary to make it work and and indeed what lies at the heart of of making it work and uh, you know i agree with you i don't think i don't think death is a complete bust and there's a couple of moments where death gets to land a couple of points she gets that line about um when she's talking to the doctor you never play your spoons anymore you don't mix your metaphors you don't have fun you're too busy blowing up planets and and tidying up your past mistakes and that's got some real bite to it because there were definitely periods of the the new adventures which were completely kind of dour and dour and joyless and and not not all of them by any stretch of the imagination and eventually they emerge into something much more kind of engaging and sort of joyful but there it is a fair and valid criticism of at least sort of part of, of the range and the fact that they're able to use death a character from that range to sort of land that criticism that works um so there's there are a couple of kind of moments where it gets away with it and yeah the the, the sort of that sort of slightly um almost dismissive performance that's given really does help to to sort of shore it up but it, it, it is a shame and yeah the, the the lack of agency is is something which you know it's it's not necessary for it to be there so it's a shame uh to have it there but but sort of i mean we have this sort of setting of this kind of remote house in in perfugium which is a lovely name for a town it's latin for sanctuary or or or, or refuge which is a it's a lovely way to name your town and 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 this kind of very kind of i mean the shadow of hinchcliffe is all over this this i i feel that sort of has to be acknowledged as well this feels like it's that kind of hinchcliffe era you know those kind of very isolated settings but which aren't just kind of base under siege stories or whatever and it's 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 a lovely invocation and in that that sort of slightly gothic feel i don't want to overemphasize the gothic side of things because i think people and i think doctor who fans are uh, sort of rather over inclined to do that but there is definitely a, a kind of gothic archness to this and and in that kind of setting the sort of storm lashed house then death feels like she's of a piece of that kind of setting i suppose slightly hammer horror as well and also slightly chimes of midnight i think that also should be sort of mentioned a little bit as well so yeah it, it's a shame but but i think there's so much more that 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 works than than doesn't work here but say uh, what doesn't work doesn't work <laughs> that makes sense uh, well do, do you like the setting here do you think that kind of isolation works for this play yeah setting's very interesting uh the way they describe it as sort of even call it in story as based off sort of Edwardian society to sort of like directly evoke the gothic feel. Like you're not wrong to state that word, even if it can be like overexposed or very sort of overused at times. It is directly going for gothic. And the sound design, I know I don't point out sound design as a rule unless it's exceptional. Well, it's exceptional here. The sound design is so great with the sort of whispering voices and very echoey big halls of this manner which they go out of their way to describe and i mean they talk about the curtains 
if you want table setting, it's a very sort of great setting. It really gets you feeling like you're in the place, which is good because you spend the whole play in this one house. And it's sort of necessary to sort of get the feel for the house. And I think that's what sort of the director, perennial director Gary Russell here, does really well is just give you that sense of atmosphere for this sort of great production. Well, absolutely. And, you know, Jekyll and Hyde is mentioned as well, and that's one of the classics of kind of Gothic literature. So there is a direct invocation of the Gothic within the play itself. And, you know, I like the fact that it's intentionally vague about what period this is set in. So this is referred to as a colony at one point, but that's that's about as far as we get. But also the when Jekyll and Hyde is mentioned, it, it, I think it's the Doctor that sort of says, oh yeah, it's a book by one of your ancestors. So this it, there's a very vague implication that this might be somewhere in the future, but it's, it's, it's left very unstated. And I think that's to the play's advantage. It, it allows that ambiguity to work in favor of the atmosphere. You, it's all about the atmosphere. It doesn't really matter if this is 19th century London or, or like the, the, yeah, that sort of mid-teens, uh, mid 20th century kind of Edwardian or whatever. That's, that's not the point of it. It's all about building the atmosphere. It's all about that. And, and even like the, even the jade curtains, the green, the, the green being the mark of death and, and the, the, the serving girl being called jade that's, that's, that's just, it feels like such a minor thing and i suppose it is really in the great scheme of things but it just it, it it's able to land it and it and the play does such a good job with those little details it never never tips its hand it should be obvious so when everybody else in the play is you know like when the doctor is smacking his forehead going oh god yeah i should have seen that coming and i, I felt exactly the same thing I've, yeah i should have seen that coming but i didn't and that's it, that's very good there's a lot of sort of very skillful kind of misdirection there and and that works very much to the play's advantage as well i have to say uh, by the way you were absolutely right to sort of mention the sound design we don't do that but this is exceptional and absolutely deserves to be mentioned but just this is a purely anecdotal thing when i was listening to this um i was uh, driving through um edinburgh well i say driving stuck in a traffic jam for a very long time in extremely hot weather with the windows wound down and the air conditioning on and everything and i still felt like i was in this sort of dark spooky uh sort of gothic mansion with the books flying off the shelves and voices echoing around me and it was it that it's it's really i'm only mentioning this to say it's sort of a testament to how well put together this whole thing is that that even in kind of you know traffic and and blaring heat and bright sunshine yes we do sometimes get sunshine in Scotland. It, it was just, I, I was completely captivated. I was completely drawn into that world. To sort of circle back and pick up on the sort of far future detail, uh, it's a really great cheat. And I mean cheat in like the positive sense here. To sort of give this story like this atmosphere of, sort of Edwardian England, but then not have to sort of be historically accurate. And so you can throw curveballs that a burned man can show up and live around for 10 years, people aren't disgusted by it, and you know people aren't too thrown by the idea of time travel and space travel in it. So it gives them a little bit of warp breathing room, so we don't have to like be explaining concepts and adhering to the time period. And that, I think, helps. It's better to do that sort of small little detail than to have to retrofit the story somehow into the Edwardian time period without ruffling too many feathers. So yeah, it's a great little trick by a Lidster. Uh, I just appreciate that. I do really want to talk about Victor and Jacqueline. And again, I think a lot of 
the problem with the characters is that they're sort of robbed of agency when death reveals that she's been manipulating them. But it does work very well with them at the start, where there's these sort of great foils for John Smith, where one sort of brings Nat Jackson brings out his sort of nurturing side and sort of friendly side, and Victor acts as a sort of rival to him, sort of antagonizing him, even not directly. And so I just think it's a great sort of dynamic between the sort of triptych, and it really does bring out John Smith well even before the Doctor shows up. Oh yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the things that makes the characters work, as I sort of mentioned before, is the fact that they're all given enough meat in the bone to make them seem like complicated characters. And characters within themselves, they're not just sort of extensions of of John Smith's psyche. They're not just extensions of, of death manipulation, but they come across as real people so you know like the idea that uh, Jacqueline might fall in love with John Smith even although you know he's this sort of burned figure you know the way that that fires up Victor's prejudices and the way that he's disgusted with her because she could fall in love with her but he still desperately wants to cling to the love that he thought existed even although he knows that it's now passed away it's gone that's that feels realistic i suppose it feels like the way a character would react and the way that their their different personalities or different aspects of the personality is able to spark something in the other characters feels very real the way that victor lashes out at, at john smith early on and then immediately begs his forgiveness or or yeah as i say the way that the um that Jacqueline can fall in love, even although there was no intent, there was never anything to, 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 you know, it was never done to harm Victor or anything. It was just the way that things went. And, and that feels like all those characters have enough detail about them that we understand something of the life, even the way that Jacqueline has this refuge where she looks after people who are, are, are underprivileged, but she's motivated by guilt rather than by, you know, genuine compassion. That, that also feels that, that feels like that kind of, you know, that kind of charity everybody you know sort of giving money to a cause simply because it will help to um, make them look good rather than because they actually really care about the uh, the cause that they're trying to support that feels like a real thing people do that and all those little details they they're not lingered on but they're used in an appropriate way that that really makes these kind of characters come to life and in all of that I, I again I have to praise kind of like we know Philip Maddock is a great actor there's no nobody was ever going to think that Philip Maddock was going to turn up and give a bad performance but he is great as Victor. And Anne Riddler as, as Jacqueline is just fantastic as well. Slightly plummy. She knows her place in society, but she also pushes against it as well. And it's, it's just this lovely performance. And it breathes, all of them breathe so much life into these sort of, these characters. Which, again, makes it so disappointing when you get to episode four. And it reveals that all these sort of layers were sort of imposed on them. Not all of them, but I mean, you know, it's a tough thing for any writer to do to make this guy is actually a serial killer, to make that twist actually work and make some still believable character. So I have sympathy for Lidster with this. But at the same time, Victor is so much weaker because all those murders are committed at sort of death's behest. And it just makes him seem like a less realistic person. You don't really know then where the line between the real Victor begins and the line between the death possessed Victor ends, it just becomes this sort of mess of a character, which is really unfortunate because, like I said, there's a lot of layers to him. It's very realistically drawn, a lot of great details to him. And then he's sort of robbed of that sort of realism by the fact that 
uh, oh, by the way, at night he's running around murdering people. And I'm not saying remove the murdering part, because it's a very effective red herring. Of course, you're led to believe for a solid three episodes that there might be something Jekyll and Hyde going on with John Smith, and you just don't know if he's the one committing these murders. And it very leans into that without going all the way. And then there's a very great reveal where Death just casually reveals, oh, Victor's been committing the murders. <laughs> and it's just, it's great. It lands really well. Everything on paper works well. But then you get to the point where the motivation behind it is so murky and confusing, it robs it a lot of the power. And that's unfortunate. I love that moment where, de- where we've been told that this is a murder mystery and then it's just dismissed in one line. Oh yeah, by the way, it's Victor. It was him. And that, that, is, that is such a good moment. It's, it's funny and it's dark and it's just, mm-hmm. it's such a lovely moment. But it does, it does undercut the character and that, that's a shame. It's a shame to have him sort of brought down from, you know, what he was just for the sort of, basically for a gag but it, at least it's a funny gag that's that's always something but i don't um i'm so reluctant to to linger on the negatives over any of this because there's just so much here that i i love um i know we were talking about it just before we came on air i if i had to sort of rate the three stories in in the villains trilogy i'm going to go davros master Omega, but I also want to say when I say that, I have to be clear that that none of them are bad. All of them are excellent, but some are more excellent than others. And and it, I think the thing that just slightly brings this down below Davros for me is is death. I think if that had been done some other way, as you said, like just like a chameleon arch or or the Rani, I don't, it doesn't matter, but something else that would have probably at the very least put them on an even footing, maybe maybe push this ahead. But but as it is, this has just been a simply brilliant trilogy. And I'm I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to sort of revisit and discuss it with you as well, because it's 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 just been brilliant. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, agreed. This is one of the strongest uh trilogies Big Fanish will do, even before they started doing trilogies as sort of a regular part of the course. And what gets it is that each story is so unique and each story has such a strong point of view and a strong theme behind it. And each story expands so much on pre-existing Doctor Who canon in such a, what feels like a vital way. Like these all feel the most vital stories to their titular character and like necessary to understand the psychology of them, even if their actual canosity is sort of, you know, up for debate. But that's, it really does sort of amplify what makes Big Finish so vital is that they can tell these stories that feel so vital for Doctor Who. And yeah, I I didn't say it before, yeah, I agree with that ranking, but also like if I were giving out letter grades, another story would be below an A minus. Almost all of them would probably be like even in like a solid like A range. Like they are just strong Doctor Who stories and I love all three of them. Well, that sounds like an excellent place to leave both Master and the Villains trilogy. So I think that probably means that it's time to turn to the postbag. Kevin, what do we have this week? We have one letter from perennial letter writer Dan. Thank you again, Dan. First off, a quick correction. He reminds me that i forgotten, in terms of Nev Fountain stories, we're talking about how he wrote Omega, and I forgot that he did write a second story of Peter Davison, The Kingmaker, which is A... I feel so dumb for because The Kingmaker is one of my favorite stories. B, I feel so dumb for because before I said that Omega was his only Peter Davison story, I stopped myself. I was like, wait, didn't he write another one? And for some reason, I thought his other one was Heroes of Sontar, <laughs> which is similarly very jokey and silly, but that's actually Alan Barnes. Maybe doing a fountain impersonation, but yeah, it's a different silly and jokey Doctor Who story. And then 
And I even had his like wiki page open and somehow missed the Kingsmaker. I just feel dumb about that. So, small correction. He did write another Fifth Doctor story. And it's, of course, one of the best Big Finish stories. And so I feel silly about that. But here's the meat of his letter. He, since we asked about Big Finish's best cliffhangers, one thing Big Finish has done a few times, I don't think the TV series has ever done, is the funny cliffhanger. My favorite is the Colin Baker is about to sing from Doctor Who and the Pirates. Hilarious, unexpected, and terrifying. Just kidding, Colin. Also, and maybe misremembering, but I think this was a cliffhanger. The fourth walls, I know I need to do now, destroy everything in the universe for no good reason at all. And do you have a confirmation if that's a fourth wall cliffhanger? Because I have not heard that story. I, I believe that it is, but I haven't listened to it for a while. So let's let's uh, give Dan the benefit of the doubt here. Yeah, let's say, yeah, definitely yeah. is. Yeah, so that is a great uh, observation. There are some comedic cliffhangers. I think it's a great use of the format that Doctor doesn't go to as often. Though there is one TV show funny cliffhanger. You know, in Dragonfire, when Sylvester McCoy climbs on that cliff for no reason. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's that's funny in the other sense of the words. Maybe in Mark of the Ronnie, when Colin Baker is like hurling on a cliff strapped to a minecart, and Perry Brown is like running after him effectively. Is that not funny to other people? Um, I think it's laughable. <laughs> but, and seriously, yeah, I don't think the TV has ever done that. The closest thing I can think of is uh, Empty Child has the horrifying cliffhanger, but has a very funny resolution in The Doctor Dances. But then that's the closest I can think of to Doctor Who doing a funny cliffhanger on TV. Well, I think the TV show is also much less inclined to go for stories which are just out-and-out comedies. I mean, they'll do what we would, I guess, sometimes pejoratively refer to as romps. But particularly in the new series, that those tend to be kind of one-episode uh, stories, so they don't have that kind of cliffhanger built into it. And usually, particularly in the new show, when they're doing cliffhangers, they tend to be, yeah, they're the big moments of drama. They're there, yeah, you know, the end of The Empty Child or whatever leading into The Doctor Dances. Those tend to be the big moments of of drama and so the idea that they might sort of fritter one away on on something which is funny is even less likely than it was in the classic series because we have far far fewer cliffhangers these days and we and indeed one season with none at all so yeah it's, i don't know I, I we've we've sort of mused in the nature of uh, big finish comedies before and um i think both of us have said that we're not particularly convinced that big finish are great comedians i think that's fair to say right um so yeah the, the 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 kind of cliffhanger thing is um i do I'd like if you've listened to our episode of on, on doctor who and the pirates listeners you will know that i was the the miserable old grandpa simpson in the corner <laughs> disliking everything that these young whippersnappers enjoyed but i do agree that that is a great cliffhanger so i will where credit where's credit's due that that is a terrific cliffhanger just before colin baker's about to sing yeah i think it's definitely room for potential like even in like a dramatic story you can have a funny cliffhanger because, I mean, just that sort of subversion of expectation. And I don't know, it's almost like a vine effect where if you cut something off right before you hit the punchline, it's almost even funnier. So that's something I'd love to see more for sure. At least one thing that um, they do sort of, even if they don't get like great cliffhangers, they'll sometimes have funny end of acts and and river song did that a little bit and a couple of david tennant plays did that so you would get to the end of the act and you would at least have a huh? <sighs> kind of lead in and lead out to it so even although they're not necessarily cliffhangers it's still operating on roughly the same principle i guess i guess my final thought on this is that it's making me think of how fun it would be if the romans had 
the classic Doctor Who cliffhanger stinger right when the first Doctor is about to play the liar. <laughs> that would be a brilliant moment. But anyways, uh, thank you again for the letter, Dan. Uh, if you want to send us a letter, email us at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Twitter. That is at talkingwhotoyou. You can find me personally on Twitter at kevyko, K-E-V-V-Y-K-O. Please like, rate, review, subscribe. Do whatever you can to our podcast on whatever podcatcher you're using because it helps other users find us and gives us great feedback. Well, thank you very much. So, over the last three weeks, we've had the personal in Omega, we've had the political in Daphros, and we've had the philosophical in Master. And as mentioned before, and as I think both of us have made very clear over the course of the last three weeks, we think this is exactly what Big Finish should exist for. Genuinely expanding the horizons of what the show can do and what the characters can be based on intelligent thought-provoking writing. It has been wonderful to be able to cover this trilogy. <laughs> Sadly, however, <laughs> next week we have Sagreus. So, yeah, um, there's nothing any of us can do about that, really. Will my obvious cynicism be justified? Will we be surprised and discover not a dreary two and a half hours of overacting and continuity points, but instead, maybe we'll find a lost classic? Well, there's only one way to find out. Oh, it's three hours, and you're forgetting it's three one-hour episodes. Oh, yeah, thanks. That really is going to make the next week so much more enjoyable. Thanks, Kevin. Well, we hope you'll join us through what apparently is three hours now, um, and we hope that you'll be listening in next week. But until then, keep talking.